Scott Mountain and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And I know I speak for both of us when I say we are on top of the world this week as we celebrate Jerry Lawler Day on the KFR wait, podcast. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Jerry Lawler what? Day again? What do you what do you mean again? Not only was it Jerry Lawler Day last week, but I also what? reminded you that nearly every single week on this podcast on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, it is Jerry Lawler Day. <sighs> well, uh, uh, okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got to think bigger, Brian. Think of it more as a um, as a festival. Oh, <laughs> so, so now it's the Jerry Lawler Festival. Yes. And how long <laughs> do you plan on continuing this royal celebration of the King's World Title victory 30 years ago? Well, I don't know, at least until the end of May. Oh, boy. Well, by, by the way, when's Lawler actually coming on the show? I went well. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I talked to Lawler. I, what? I talked to Lawler recently. Uh, the King sends his regrets. The uh, the Memphis Monarch of the Met certainly wanted to be here today for the first annual Jerry Lawler first Fest. First annual? I, do, what? do you plan on us doing this every year on the show now? <laughs> I'm already planning next year's lineup. Anyway, as I was saying, before I was so Rick rudely interrupted, the AWA World Heavyweight Champion. Ex-champion. Ex-champion. The champ wanted to be here today to provide more insight into his plans for wrestling world domination back in the 70s and 80s. But of course, his highness had to represent the United States has a distinguished dignitary at the royal wedding this weekend. <laughs> it, what? The royal wedding this weekend. I'm pretty sure the king was in Arkansas at some comic book convention this weekend. Oh no, I thought I'm pretty. I'm, you're no, you're wrong. I'm looking right here at his Twitter. Here's on his Twitter feed a selfie with cosplay Deadpool, and there's what? his booth next to Virgil. You you think the king was ribbing me? I think there's a pretty good chance of that. Yeah. Well, at least we have one member of the royal family on today's show. Well, that's right, Scott, and I'll jump in here and I'll let everyone know that today, Kevin Lawler returns for part two of a revealing look at his life as the son of the King of Memphis in their hometown. And we have the man who crowned the king back in 1974, legendary Memphis promoter Jerry Jarrett is back for a fascinating interview in which he provides more insight into his political battles within the NWA and the AWA to get Jerry Lawler a world title run. The original Double J will even explain why he once turned down NWA president Sam Mushnick's offer to give the king a short reign with the Alliance crown. Jarrett will also tell us about his new Memphis Wrestling podcast debuting soon and what he really thinks of a man he refers to only as unfortunate Bruce Pritchard. I like Bruce. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, (laughs) did I hear that right? Did I hear that right? Unfortunately, we... We do have a bit of an audio issue with Jerry Jarrett during the recording, uh, but thanks to Brian's expertise, uh, the interview sounds much better than it did previously, but it's frankly not up to the typical five-star standards you've come to expect at the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and I'm especially embarrassed that this had to happen during the first annual Jerry Lawler Fest. Oh, will you stop already? <laughs> But we will be right back with Prince Kevin. Prince Prince Kevin? We'll be right back with Kevin Lawler right after this message.
guy that we were just talking about uh, a little bit earlier, as he will be, in fact, defending his NWA Southern Heavyweight title. How does this feel, Banana Nose, to stand next to the world's heavyweight champion? Well, I did an interview with uh, Terry Funk, and uh, it was a tough bout. Uh, it was one of those things that went against you, but... It was his toughest bout that he's ever had in his wrestling career because it was the one where he finally lost the belt. He lost well, the title. I'll, 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 let me rephrase that. He didn't lose the belt, but he lost the title. He is no longer the world's heavyweight champion. You people are looking at him right now. Oh, come on, Jerry. Now, you're just claiming that you uh, are the world's heavyweight champion. The belt. Do, we have, do, do you have the slide I brought with you, the, the, the picture that I had made after the, after the matches there? Can you show that? And this may uh, wipe out any doubt in your mind. What is this now? We haven't seen this one. Well, it's just an official photograph that I'm gonna that uh, will huh? be distributed all over the country. That's exactly what it is. There it is. Can you can you get it down there and see what belt that is I'm wearing? No. That was taken immediately after the match Monday night, and around my waist is the world's heavyweight championship belt. I left the ring with it. I had it around my waist. I beat Terry Funk. And what more can you say? I am the world's heavyweight champion. So from now on, when you refer to me, you say the king, the world's heavyweight champion, and also the southern heavyweight champion. There you go. Well, there you go. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Mr. Lawler has just stated that he is the world heavyweight champion, and that makes him a claimant to the world heavyweight champion. Uh, I would remind the folks that that belt that you were talking about still remains in the... Uh, the belt is merely a trinket just exactly like this one right here is. Merely a symbol. The title is what is important, and that's what Mr. Terry Funk lost. He lost the title of world's heavyweight champion. Okay. I possess that now. You possess that now. All right, I know you possess the NWA Southern Heavyweight title. We have no dispute about that. There is a uh, very large gentleman who you met one other time before when you had the NWA Southern Heavyweight title. You not only lost the title, but you lost the belt to Ron Fuller, and he is back 10 pounds heavier. <laughs> Ron Fuller, well, he's 10 pounds heavier. Well, that's going to be an advantage for me. The only way he won last time was he turned sideways in the ring, and I couldn't see him. He was moving all around like a string bean pole, and I couldn't see where the man was. He's so skinny. How much did you say he weighs? 265, 6'9". Six, 6'9", nine. Six, nine, 265. Well, you figure out, distributing 265 pounds, his feet are size 14s. They're about this long. And then you distribute the rest of that 200 pounds right up 6'9", inches tall, and that makes him just about this big around. Do you realize that, Russell? Yeah. And do you know what I'm going to do to him Monday night? I'm going to take him, and I'm going to take him just like you take a pencil, and I'm going to snap him right in two. His neck looks like a stack of dimes. I'm going to take my finger, and I'm going to thump him, break that punk neck of his, and then he's not going to be coming around here calling me a queen because it's one thing I don't take kindly to, son, and that's being called a queen of Memphis. I think Jarrett really booked Bockwinkle really well. I mean, if you look at how Ric Flair was booked in world class in Georgia, um, World class, I think it was absolutely the worst. You know, the, he never got to beat any of the Von Erichs, uh, it, uh, even by cheating. I mean, even in the cage match where, you know, I'd, for, I'd forgotten about this until I, I watched the, the thing I, about 10 years ago. I'd totally forgotten that Flair didn't even get the pinfall 
on Von Erich. The match just sort of stops uh, be- because Kerry keeps going after the cage door is slammed in his face. I, 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 for some reason, was thinking that the logical finish would have been, you know, as soon as Gordy slams that cage door into Kerry's face that knocks him out, Flair gets the pin. But the match still keeps going, and he still nearly beats Flair. And then finally, I think he just passes out. So even then, you know, Flair can't even get get a pinfall. But with but with Nick, he always found kind of a tricky way to to beat your dad. Whether it, and it was always kind of slight. You know, he might just grab a rope for leverage. Uh, maybe his feet on the rope, something like that, or he'd win by count out by slipping back into the ring, uh, just in time. Uh, he also was one of the very few who was allowed to kick out of your dad's fist drop. And that had to be by, I mean, I, and even when your dad finally beat him in a, uh, I believe it was a, it was a November 1982 bout with, uh, your dad had to put up his hair because Bockwinkle had won. He not only had the AWA title, the world title, but he had lost it briefly to Otto Wands and then came to Memphis and beat your dad for the Southern title. And I didn't know that you could do this, but I guess when you're the world champion of the AWA, you can do whatever you want. But he said he was going to retire the championship <laughs> or something like that. Um, and this was, this was your dad's last chance to get it. And even then it took three fist drops and, Two of them, Bockwinkle kicked out of when your dad came off from the middle rope. It took your took your dad going to the top rope to nail the fist drop to finally put Bockwinkle out. And so, even in losing, Bockwinkle still to me had this aura of man, how tough is this guy? He, you know, it, uh, uh, normally it just takes one you know fist drop from the king to put somebody away this took three and it took one from the top rope so i just think that they were really careful with how they handled bockwinkle and even though he was slippery and we we felt like your dad could kick his ass and should be the champion bockwinkle i think he i think memphis fans respected him as the world champion yeah he just came across that way you know just you know from head to toe his whole his whole appearance and demeanor you know you just you just believed him. You just believed that, man, he was this guy that really was just, um, you know, number one was just really intelligent, but at the same time, you just, you could just tell that, man, this guy also, you know, physically, you know, just knows what he's doing, can handle himself in the ring and, and was just, um, you know, an overall good technical wrestler. I mean, he just, he just, he made you believe it. You know, he was just, to me, I always thought Nick Bonko was just kind of like, you know, just the, the the blueprint of what a world champion is supposed to supposed to be like. Yeah, and I I love the way he he came out just so you know he was so regal and uh, he carried the small white towel. You know, should should sweat ever get in his brow? You know, he could he could just uh, go over there and wipe it. And uh, I just uh, I thought he was the complete absolute package. And it was a little so to me it was a little uh, anticlimactic when when you when your dad finally got the belt. Uh, I, I sort of wish that the title change had happened, you know, in 82, 83 or 84. Um, and it almost seemed like it should have been Nick, uh, to do the honors for your dad. But in another way, uh, you know, I, by that point I had started to sort of have a different appreciation for, for wrestling. And I, you know, was reading, reading the newsletters and thought I was the dirt sheets and thought I was really smart. And I I was very aware that Kurt Hennig was a guy that was on his way up and was probably 
in the top 10 as far as workers go. And, and Nick was still Nick. Uh, they, you know, and gosh, Hennig and Bockwinkle had that tremendous one hour draw. I think, uh, that aired on ESPN on new year's Eve. That was just absolutely incredible. But, uh, for me, it, it sort of invigorate, reinvigorated the chase because, uh, Kurt, uh, even though he wasn't Bockwinkle, he was young and he was hungry and he, you know, you could just tell that he was a guy who was going to be one of the, one of the big next superstars in wrestling. Uh, and he, and he was when he eventually went to WWF, which played a hand in your dad finally getting the title. Uh, but g- going in, and I know you were there that night, uh, May 9th, 1988, Jerry Lawler day in the, in the city of Memphis. Uh, what do you remember about the atmosphere of that night? And did you know, ahead of time that your dad was going to get the belt. I didn't know ahead of time that, that he was going to win. I mean, you know, I wasn't hanging around like that. We didn't talk about that kind of stuff, you know, so I had no idea as far as that goes. Um, I remember being there that night and, uh, you know, it was just one of those, you know, how every so often there would just be this, this, I don't know, just this feeling of kind of electricity and energy, you know, at, at one of the shows, you know, I was always such a huge fan of any time they would do that extra pomp and circumstance, you know, any time that the, that they would use the spotlights or, you know, or my dad would come out, you know, on a throne or have any kind of special interest. I, you know, I always was just a big fan of that kind of stuff. And, and that was one of those nights where not only did they do all that, but then they also had, you know, uh, you know, the mayor and other big name people in town, you know, at ringside and, 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 and Fargo and Juju and everybody. I mean, so they, they, they made it just seem like this really big deal either way. Cause it was kind of like, Hey, if he doesn't win it, he's going to retire. So it was either going to be kind of like it's a retirement, you know, party or victory celebration. So, so they just made it seem special, you know, either, either way. But at the same time, I, you know, even though, I mean, it, it, it drew and, and had a great crowd and, and people stunted. I still feel like at the same time, it was kind of anticlimactic just because the same way with, with Bockwinkle. I don't feel like that current, that Kurt Henning, that they just had that same, that same history. You know, it just didn't mean as much him beating Henning as it would have him beating Bockwinkle, one of these other guys that he had, you know, just tried so hard to do and things like that. Um, I, I, I just I just feel like the people probably would have enjoyed it more that way. And I think with Kurt being younger and and hadn't really just established himself yet as as this champion because he really just you know hadn't hadn't beaten anybody you know um, like like Bockwinkle had you know Bockwinkle or Flair anybody else who came in you know had had big name victories under their belt where you know Henning just hadn't been around long enough to do that. And also on top of that, the fact that they had just drugged it out. You know, remember there was like just so many matches with my dad and Kurt back and forth, back and forth, where they brought, you know, Larry Henning in and this and that, you know, it was just seemed like it really drug out for a long time before they finally even did that one to where you just almost felt like, man, you were tired of seeing those matches the same way I remember with, you know, when, when Kerry Von Erich first came in, it was kind of like a big deal at first, but then they wrestled each other like every Monday night for like a solid year to the point where you were like sick of seeing, you know, Lawler and Von Erich kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the same kind of way with, with Kurt Henning. I think they just drug it out really, really long to the, to the, you know, even though, yeah, I mean, it, when they finally did that one, it was a big deal and, and stuff, but it, 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 at the same time, it just, I, I would just say it was a little anticlimactic compared to like if it had been, you know, Bockwinkle or Flair or somebody that just, you know, had a little bit more, um, longevity and credibility 
um, you know, to their name. Well, but uh, I will say, though, that that's probably one of the few guys who probably was capable of having, well, I guess what you would say, you know, I, I hate to use the rating system, but a, a four, he was capable of, of having a four-star match with with your dad. Um, that night, I, 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 I think I'd seen them have a better match than that one, but combined with the atmosphere uh and the fans just rallying behind your dad and and i i was uh, discussing this other with, with with another guest uh there was that there was that that moment of doubt i mean i, I Meltzer, i think had been reporting that Hennig was close to signing with wwf uh, all signs were were pointing to a title switch as far as i was concerned but when when your dad was you know bleeding and he had a gusher going and Fargo's in there and he's looking at the eye you know and he he's always considered your dad to be almost like a like a son and your dad's looked at him like a father figure you know I I remember for a moment going oh my gosh he's 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 not going to get it they're going to stop they're going to Fargo's going to do the right thing and stop the match which actually would have been a very dramatic uh, finish. Uh, in an ending, if your dad truly, I know it's laughable to think about this now, but if your dad truly wanted to walk away from the business <laughs> at that time, uh, that would have been an interesting way to, to do it. Uh, but then he comes out of nowhere with that, with that, you know, he's on, you know, literally on the ropes, you know, nothing hold, is holding him up, but, but the ropes and, 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 and Fargo's trying to pull him off. And then suddenly he just comes out with that big punch that sets him up for the for the slingshot and also you know the slingshot's a little little unorthodox uh move to win the world championship with but uh but and that was another thing i always always thought that that finish was a little anticlimactic too i always i was always disappointed that it wasn't like your typical you know pop the strap big lawler comeback kind of thing it was kind of like it just kind of came out of nowhere um you know, when you go back and watch it, I mean, it's still, I mean, it's, 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 it actually was kind of dramatic and, 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 and it's emotional, but I, I just remember at the time wishing that it was the bigger comeback kind of a, you know, going to the finish type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the fans, you know, certainly did pop in and I couldn't help but think I, my, you know, my first world heavyweight title match that I saw live in person was, was the August 79 bout. One hour draw. Uh, I was, you know, they say kids have short attention spans. I was into it every step of the way. And, you know, they were doing some rest holds and stuff like that. But this is before, you know, your dad was in his primes in in 79. He had not broken his leg yet. Uh, you know, some people say that maybe your dad lost a step or two uh, after the broken leg. Uh, I don't know. Still a hell of a worker. But uh, it was a very fast paced match. Uh, and for, you know, especially considering the fact that they go the full hour and your dad's, uh, again, bleeding a gusher and Bakwako just can't quite finish him off. Uh, and I just thought, thought that that was riveting. And at the end of it, you know, I was with my uncle, but I was seated next to me on the other side was, was this, uh, o- older gentleman who was drinking from a flask. Um, he was alone and I, uh, he he had talked to me a couple of times during the bout and at toward toward the end of it when it looked like time was going to run out he goes you know i'm afraid that i'm i'm not going to live long enough to see jerry get the world title and to me that epitomizes just how much it meant to the fans in memphis 
Yeah, you know, um, you know that you know you, you wouldn't hear somebody you know probably make a comment like that these days. Um, you know, within any kind of arresting thing, but yeah, I think that was one of those things where. You know, it 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 was just it was so personal to everybody back then. I mean, they really feel you know. I mean, same kind of way like other sports fans. I think, man, like you know, that was their whole thing, man. They just want to live long enough to see like their team win the the World Series or the Super Bowl or whatever the case, you know, um, and things like that. And that was, you know, that was you know Memphis's equivalent. You know, wrestling was like just the, you know, it was the equivalent of a football or baseball team or something. Yeah. And I, and I also wonder, you know, I know that your dad a lot of times uh, had ring jackets made for him by fans. Uh, it's just astounding. Uh, I know, food, you know, they would often bake cakes and food, you know, bring stuff, you know, around Thanksgiving, they would get turkeys and it, it was like the fans were, were part of this family and they, and they cared deeply about the wrestlers. And, and I think, you know, the fandom is still there. Fans still get really excited when they see WWE guys. But I think it's more about what's in it for me. You know, it's like, oh, let, let me let me get a selfie with you. Let me bug the, the shit out of you. And, and, let, and will you sign this? And maybe I'll sign two of these and I'll, and, and I'll keep one and then I'll sell the other one on eBay. Where as before, you know, we just wanted to to do you know we we want to you know the fans were, were doing stuff for the boys you know some more than others the arena rats god bless them but you know the fact that they're they, you know bringing them food all the time and a lot of times I, the boys i think would throw the food out because you never knew what somebody's in right, yeah. yeah especially <laughs> if you were a heel and somebody's baking you a cake maybe you're not entirely sure what's in there but uh but i know for <laughs> a fact you know that your dad would often have to get ring jackets that were nicely done that were uh, made. Yeah, I mean, there was even um, you know one one of the ladies, one of the fans that would do that. Would every every once in a blue moon would would make a little like a little ring jacket or a little little jumpsuit or something for for me and Brian also. Like it was that was always kind of like a bonus, like a like you know I remember every once in a blue moon at like a Christmas or something, man, we would get a you know like a little Dundee looking kind of jumpsuit, you know, or, or some kind of a, you know, like, so, or some masks, you know, something that was always just kind of like a miniature version of, of, you know, one of my dad's, um, you know, things and stuff like that, which, which, you know, we always thought was just like the coolest, coolest thing in the world. And, so wait a and so, there was also another, another. So wait a minute, uh, just, just really quickly. So, and so if one of those jumpsuits, if it didn't fit you, they would give it to Dundee? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think that was the thing. If, if maybe if it was just just a tad bit small for Dundee, then it might could you know fit me or Brian when we were like maybe you know eight or nine or something like that. But um, but uh, yeah, and then there was another wrestling fan that I mean, like for years would like every Christmas we would get just like another, you know, like you know, like remember like the old Hardy Boy, you know, mystery books and stuff like that. Like every Christmas we would get like a, a Hardy Boy and Nancy Drew book from some 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 wrestling fan, you know that um. You know, they would just send us like the, the the latest, you know, book of the of the collection of you know the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. You know, one thing that that was interesting about uh, wrestling is that it was it was an experience that you shared with with your buddies and your friends. You know, because you couldn't go to a, a pro ball game somewhere, so you know that that's what you talked about. And uh, I know that you met uh, a guy by the name of uh, Nick Nahad uh, in high school. 
uh, was a great guy. And I think, you know, it's around the time that, that you and I became friends. And so I, I knew Nick as well. And we all had this, you know, we were all in a way completely different in, in a sense. Uh, but we all shared this love of wrestling. Um, and we all kind of started trying to figure out how to get in. And, and eventually Nick did get in. Uh, performing on Memphis TV as uh, what was this? Was his first name Ali Ben Khan or was it Mr. Clyde? Well, it, it was it was first Mr. Clyde because his his full name is Comedy Clyde Nicholas Nicknahad, and uh, so a lot of times we would just well when another friend of mine uh, Jeremy Williams and I would used to would go on the weekends up to like Carruthersville, Missouri you know, probably like in 1990 or something before we even started really doing any of the Memphis stuff, when we would start going up there and just doing these little little local outlaw wrestling shows, uh, we started bringing Nick around with us, and we just kind of put him in as this, as this bodyguard role, you know, um, with just like a trench coat and a hat, and we just, we just called him Mr. Clyde. Um, and then from there, he got to just kind of start hanging around and you know, once I got more involved with doing the, the mental stuff and was in charge of like, you know, booking the job guys and things like that, I was able to get him, you know, booked to be just one of the Saturday morning job guys as, as Mr. Clyde. And then it was later on when he um, kind of started hanging around, became big friends with Burt, Burt Prentice. Burt Prentice turned him into the, the Ollie Bencon chic character. And, um, and then he started doing that um, later on. And uh, was was that a big thrill for him, even though it was just kind of being a job guy? Was that a big thrill for him to be on Saturday morning? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, yeah, because, I mean, you know, anybody from our our generation, you know, it was just such a, you know, we're all such huge fans of the Saturday morning wrestling show. So to be involved in any way, especially to get to actually, you know, be on the TV and get to, you know, go out there and, and wrestle with guys that you grew up watching, it was just a huge, huge thing for everybody. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, he, he, I mean, he, he loved it, you know. And 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 a lot of the boys, I think, thought fondly of Nick too. You know, he's very he was kind of a soft spoken guy, uh, but also had a really good sense of humor and 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 was a it was a smart guy. Even though you know, uh, I don't even think he finished high school, did he? But he was a was like a genius when it came to computers and ended up being successful in that field. Yeah. Well, he actually did finish high school only because you know back then he really i don't think had no real direction or purpose in life and was just you know you know just you know a lot of times you know would skip school wouldn't go and and just you know had a really bad track record in in, in school and um but i remember kind of getting on him at the time and telling him hey man if you don't you know go to school and finish and graduate you know we're not gonna let you do the the wrestling stuff anymore so that was like the kind of incentive that got him to to finish and i, I think he, he, was, he was still in like either 11th or 12th grade when you know when i talked him into you know participating in an angle with my brother then where he had to get his head shaved so he had a you know he had to go to school with a bald head and during like in the like the 11th or 12th grade you know from from losing a hair match on so, you he, know, so with, he, he, with went, he wasn't even in the business that he had lost a hair match <laughs> Well, no, he was. I mean, he had already been doing the okay, the Mr. Clyde oh, stuff. Well, yeah, and everything. But, yeah, yeah, he had already been. Yeah, he had already been doing the Mr. Clyde. That was then, sort of on the outlaw side, though, wasn't it? No, this was, oh, this okay. was part of Memphis because oh, it was okay. I got because they it was it was it was an angle where like like between like my brother and Jeff Jarrett, where they were trying to get my brother to put his hair up, but he wouldn't 
put his hair up. So he had, I think, like one week talking Zeke's Rivers into into well, if he lost, he put his hair up, and then Zeke lost, and then I guess the very next week he was like he talked Mr. Clyde into putting his hair up. You know, so so then they both ended up getting their head head shaved. So so there was like a little run where like Zeke and Mr. Clyde would be kind of like at ringside with my brother, you know, kind of like as, as his stooges. Um, so they they were kind of playing know, the, kind the, of, the the Mickey Pool role, right? <laughs> oh my gosh! And uh, but like I said, he was still only like eleventh or twelfth grade at the time, you know. So he <laughs> you know, had to go to school, you know, like 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 ball hitting. <laughs> oh my gosh! I don't think there's too many juniors or seniors in high school who can who can say that. Oh. But, uh, and unfortunately, uh, you know, Nick, uh, got, got really sick. Uh, you know, I moved to Los Angeles and sort of, uh, lost contact with him every once in a while. I, I would, I would hear from him, you know, when I was writing my Kentucky Fried Wrestling column. And, uh, actually I think even when I got back into the business briefly and was working for that promotion in, in Kansas city, uh, you know, he's he asked about that. I was always, always really curious, uh, to know what was going on in my life, and it was always nice catching up with him. Um, and I and I knew that he, I knew that he had had cancer. Um, I, I was under the impression, I, I guess, because I just, you know, didn't speak to him that often, and the fact that he didn't really complain a lot. You know, he's just a guy who who had faith um, in the Lord, and I know he's a very religious guy, and he just, I don't know, he. I, he, he never let on to me how 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 sick he he truly was, um, and I know that he turned uh, turned for the worse recently and uh, and passed away. And I was really really sorry to hear that. Just um, yeah, there aren't too many guys who you meet. Um, you know, I met him before I got into the business, but you know, I think anybody who ever knew uh, Nick. Uh, backstage or any any of the boys universally liked you know um just he was just a, he was just a good man and and from what i understand uh, uh a good friend to you and a good father yeah that was one of those things you know i mean I, i've known him probably since about the eighth grade and you know we just had that that common bond with wrestling and just hit it off and and um you know, and just, you know, stayed good friends and stayed in constant contact ever, ever since. And just, you know, was a part of so much stuff, you know, with each other as far as ups and downs and things like that. I mean, there were, there was a few times where, you know, he'd be in hard times and I would let him, you know, move in with me for a few months and stay with me to try to get things situated out and stuff like that. Or I would get him hired on somewhere where maybe I had a little, a little job somewhere vice versa you know it seemed like in a lot of ways sometimes our our lives kind of mirrored each other a, a little bit as far as like how you know i had you know moved to a way to the philadelphia to to work with eddie gilbert and those guys and doing the ecw stuff and then and then you know at, at some point he kind of followed like that and moved away and and kind of hooked up with burt prentice and lived with him and and was working with him, you know, with some wrestling venture in, in Indianapolis and then eventually came back and we did stuff. And then, and then, you know, uh, you know, we did, a, uh, I had kind of got into doing like security guard work and gotten him, you know, on a lot of those, those jobs. And then I think there was even a time where he worked for a separate company and kind of got me on there. So a lot of times we would marry each other in a way like that. But the biggest thing was, um, the same day or the same you know night actually that my dad had the heart attack on raw 
um, that day, Nick's mother had a heart attack. And I remember, like, you know, either calling or texting my dad and telling him, you know, hey, man, you know, we always kind of call him Clyde. But I said, I said, man, Clyde's mom, you know, had a heart attack today. And he was all, wow, you know. And then later that night, my dad had a heart attack. Um, but the very next day, Clyde's mother actually passed away. She didn't, she didn't, you know, survive it. She passed away. It was really kind of a, just crazy circumstance. It was like, you know, here was a, a, a Monday, you know, Clyde's mother has a heart attack. The very next day, she dies from the heart attack. Then the very next day, um, you know, Clyde gets involved in this big accident where he um, uh, was going to his car. He had let a friend borrow his car. I guess it wasn't all the way in gear well, and Clyde did the automatic start on it. And so when he did the automatic start, it kind of jolted the car a little bit and kind of bumped it in the drive, and the car just kind of rolled into Clyde and kind of crushed, crushed him in between that car and another car and just crushed his leg to the point where – they almost had to, had to, you know, amputate his leg because it just severed it so bad. He was losing so much blood, had to get, you know, taken to one hospital. And then they found out that that hospital wasn't equipped to do what needed to be done. So he had to get airlifted from like a hospital in Mississippi all the way back to Memphis to do stuff. And that whole time period almost cost him his leg. But they were able to, um, you know, save that and everything. And then the very, like that, that after that accident, the very next day then was, was his birthday. So it was just this crazy, you know, sequence of events. And so there for a while, he was just kind of dealing with just this whole, this whole banged up leg situation. And then it kind of seemed like in the middle of that, or just when he was starting to kind of get, you know, recovering from that was when all of a sudden he developed uh, this colon cancer and basically had been just kind of dealing with and fighting that colon cancer for, for five years. So in the course of that, it was just, you know, a lot of ups and downs where sometimes he would go through through chemo and radiation and, and have, you know, weaker times and then back to stronger times and his weight would fluctuate. And, you know, so you would just kind of see him going through different stages, but at the same time, he was still with his business, you know, traveling out of town and working and staying pretty active. So, you know, you really just, it was almost one of those things where, like, yeah, you knew he had this cancer, but it wasn't showing a whole lot of signs of it. It was just kind of like this roller coaster ride, and you almost just kind of got used to it, just thinking, okay, well, heck, I guess he's just going to, you know, have have cancer for the rest of his life or, or, or whatever, you know? And you just didn't think that, especially at that age, you know, somebody in their early 40s, you know, was going to die because he just, like I said, never really showed just major signs of constantly, like, you know, in a hospital bed or hospital room, stuff like that. Um, eventually ended up having to have like three permanent colostomy bags, you know, which is another thing that's just, you know, something you can't imagine it being that young to just know that you're going to have to wear colostomy bags for the rest of your, your life. And, um, like I said, I mean, it just was constant up and down. You kind of got used to it just thinking that, you know, um, you know, I mean, I would ask you from time to time, Hey, I mean, are they telling you anything as far as, are they saying, hey, man, you got six months to live, you got a year, you got, you know, you couldn't go another 10, 20 years? I mean, what are they saying? But he would always just, I don't know if they was telling him and he just didn't want anybody to know or if they legitimately just, nobody really knew. But every time I would ask him, he would just say, no, no one's really telling me anything. They're just, you know, everybody's just kind of, you know, kind of optimistic about it. And, and I guess it just finally reached the point of no return where there was just nothing else they could do, you know, any kind of treatments and Everything else, it was just he had just kind of just ran his course. It's like, man, we've done everything we could do. There's just nothing else, and and um, so it finally caught up with him, you know. And he finally ended up, you know, passing away. And 
um, you know, leaving behind, you know, two, two young kids, um, you know, a, a, a nine-year-old and a, and a 12-year-old. And, um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was, you know, pretty sad to, to, to go through that, you know, especially, you know, cause that was my biggest thing. I always just kind of wanted to know, Hey, you know, if I had any idea of like, man, they're, you know, giving this guy six months or something to live, I would have wanted to try to, you know, spend as much time with him and do as much as I could. I posted when, when I finally found out, you know, his wife had, had called and said, Hey, you know, if you want to see him before he dies and you get to the hospital. And at that point it was like, you know, he only had like a day left, you know, and it was kind of like, man, at that point there was just no, no way to spend any real time with, with anybody. And I, you know, just always wish that, you know, and had a little bit more of a heads up on something like that, you know, selfishly thinking, Hey, you know, just like to spend a little more time, you know, with this guy, but, you know, just didn't work out that way, but, you know, just have a ton of, you know, years and, and memories of, of good times with him, you know, wish, wish I could have had more, but, um, you know, unfortunately that's just, you know, kind of, kind of how it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was, uh, I was really shocked to hear it. Cause I guess, I guess I just thought, you know, Nick, uh, just, just, he seemed to have a resolve, you know, and, and, you know, might be sick for a little while and, and then bounce back. Um, but I think a lot of that maybe had to do with the fact that he didn't want us to know, uh, just, just how, yeah. how bad he, he was. But, uh, we, uh, man, we'll always remember him. And I, and I think anybody who ever met Nick and even talked to him for, for a short period of time, uh, would remember that guy. Cause he just had, uh, I don't know, man, he just had a, he just had a very light way of, of, uh, of carrying himself and, and you just felt at ease, uh, talking to him. Uh, so, uh, Nick, uh, again, we, uh, we dedicated an episode to you previously. If we're talking about fans of Memphis wrestling who, you know, grew up idolizing Jerry Lawler and watching this chase for the world title, we have to mention Nick. He was a big wrestling fan who got to live his dream even for a short while and I consider myself lucky to have even known him for a short period of time. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess one, 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 one real good thing for him because, I mean, you know how it is. I mean, you know, I mean, my dad don't let too many people kind of get in the inner circle and get around and get and get close. And Nick was one of those few guys that managed to be able to get in on that level. You know, I mean, he he was you know welcome and and was at a lot of you know personal you know, family get togethers or events or, you know, anything that, that, that went on that a lot of us did as a group, you know, Nick was just one of those guys that was always, you know, included and, 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 and thought of and was, and, and was a part of it. And, and, you know, and that's, that's a really you know rare feat to be able to accomplish, you know, and especially to be, you know, somebody like of our, of our level, you know, of our age, you know, to have been, you know, somebody who just grew up as a random wrestling fan and, you know, idolized, Memphis wrestling and Jerry Lawler to have gotten to basically be on that level all the way up, you know, till the end, you know? So, um, so I think that's one, you know, one thing that man, he definitely can, can be able to take with him that man, not a lot of, you know, guys in that same position, you know, ha- have actually been able to do. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he, I remember, yeah, he was always, he was always, uh, kind of asked to, uh, to tag along. And, uh, and, and that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. It's kind of funny when, you know, I, I don't see your dad a lot, but I remember last time I was in town and you and I were going to eat lunch someplace kind of nice. And he's like, Oh, why don't you meet us for lunch? And t- tell about now, bye. I'll, I'll pick up the check. And it was at church's fried chicken. 
<laughs> right. over on Sycamore View. And, uh, you know, and it, and it just like, it was just like, you know, no time had passed at all. You know, your brother and I are messing with each other and kind of insulting each other a little bit. And then, you know, we always just start giggling and talking about the old times. And uh, it, it was just always that way, uh, especially when, when Nick was around. So he uh, he will be missed. Well, hey, Kevin, listen, thank you for uh, for coming back and talking with us and uh, pro- providing that very unique perspective of not only being a fan of the king, but also his son um, and the and the perks and the highs and lows uh, that went along with that. Uh, it was fun talking to you today. Hey man, I can't believe. I also I thought we were gonna maybe even get to at least kind of touch on a little bit of the fact of, you know, you know, probably my biggest, you know, creation ever in the wrestling business, the Christmas creature, who is now the current, you know, Knox County mayor. Well, um, I suppose you want credit for that as well. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's some kind of a you know six degrees of Kevin Bacon type thing, you know, that you can attest. To that you know I'm, I'm sure i probably played some kind of role i guess in him you know being able to make it that that far in in, in life um and everything i mean uh yeah well I mean, i'll maybe, at least take care of it. yeah well maybe we'll talk about that on, we'll talk about that on another episode <laughs> <laughs> all right kevin well thanks for uh thanks for coming on man take care all right man bye-bye Obviously, on a draw, Nick Bockwinkel uh, retained his his uh, world heavyweight title, but Jerry Lawler uh, fired away at him. There wasn't any question about it. Bockwinkel did the same thing in return. He fired it back. I want to bring out the guy that was the uh, challenger in that particular instance, and we're talking about the king, Jerry Lawler, who did indeed make a valiant effort to take the title away from Nick Bockwinkel, but... First of all, let me say I'm glad to see you're back. Well, especially you, after Jerry. seeing your front. Oh. Let me ask yeah. you one other thing. Did you hear that the court just made a ruling that they're going to have to make the Lone Ranger take his mask off? If they ever see you, they're going to make a ruling where you have to wear a mask. Do you realize that? Oh, uh, you're in rare form today. I hear it. That's right, baby. Okay. When I beat the world heavyweight champion, I am in rare form, and I guess you saw it right there, didn't you? Well, I saw what could be interpreted I'm certainly by you as a win over the champion he still could has be belt. interpreted it was a one two belt. three that's right it took me a couple of minutes longer than I anticipated but what what can you expect I was fighting two world champions at night not only Nick Bockwinkle the world heavyweight wrestling champion but Tommy Marlin the world heavyweight cheating referee that was two against one and I'm telling this to everybody that was at the Mid-South Coliseum in your heart. You know I'm right, baby. That guy cheated me out of the World Heavyweight Championship. And let me tell you why, Lance Russell. You know why? You know who Tommy Marlin is? You know he don't referee around here all the time. You know why? Well, let me tell you why. Because his brother is Eddie Marlin. Now, do you know who Eddie Marlin is? Eddie Marlin is Jerry Jarrett's father-in-law. Now, this all seems to be a little convenient family affair, doesn't it? Jerry Jarrett puts Tommy Marlin in there because he don't want me to be the world heavyweight champion. I realize that. Jerry Jarrett knows that if I was the world's heavyweight champion, I'd have to leave here, and he could see his little candy castle come crumbling down, baby. He knows without the king around here, he'd go right in the dumper. That's why he put Tommy Marlin in there. That's why I was cheated out of the world's heavyweight championship. But in spite of all of that, 
I still did what no man on earth has been able to do, and that's beat Nick Bockwinkle. What do you think about that, Banana Nose? Well, when 60 minutes is up, 60 minutes is up, and that is exactly Yeah, and when a man gets his shoulders pinned to the mat, he gets them pinned to the mat. And you saw it just like all of the rest of you idiots out there saw it. I beat Nick Bockwinkle. Now, let me ask you something else. When Dundee wrestled Nick Bockwinkle, he got knocked out, baby. He got sent down to Dreamland. And Jerry Jarrett was so proud of Bill Dundee, he took the film of that little sawed-off runt out to Arizona, showed it to the president of the AWA, and they granted Bill Dundee a rematch. But do you think that he's called the president of the AWA after I beat Nick Bockwinkle? Do you think he wants to show him that film? Do you think he wants a rematch for me? Oh, no, baby. Just like I said, Jerry Jarrett don't want me to be the world's champion because he can kiss me goodbye, baby. And old Moneybags Jarrett tight wide Jarrett he don't want to see me leave from here well let me tell you something I'm gonna get my rematch with Bockwinkle I'm gonna get it one way or other and that's a promise brother well I hear it Jerry Jarrett is a promoter his business is of putting in the matches that the people want to see and if he can put in another yeah. match with he Nick knows Bockwinkle. they want to see the king you think anybody would pay to come down and see a sawed off runt bug-eyed Bill Dundee no they come to see me, That's baby. Let Dundee. me tell you something about Bill Dundee. I want to no, say a few words no, about no, Bill wait, Dundee. You wait a minute. I don't have to talking. wait for nothing. Bill Dundee, I got a tape from him that had a few things to say about Jerry Before Law. Before you show that tape, let me tell you something. Bill Dundee, the little sawed-off runt, he's got the Southern Heavyweight Championship. Yeah. yeah, now, do you think he'd put that up on the line Monday night? Well, Do you think for one minute that Bill Dundee wants to risk that belt against me? No way, baby. I called Jerry Jarrett. I said, put that belt up. Get Dundee to put that belt up. If you close that it Dundee's down, such a, a minute, big coward. He knows when he puts that belt up against me, he can kiss it goodbye, you baby. Just keep quiet a minute and take a listen to what Bill Dundee had to say. Be fair about it. Why ain't he here today to say it? Huh? Well, he is not here today. Yeah, but I you know do why? Because I am here. Okay. That's why he. Let's ain't roll here. the tape in there and take a listen to what Bill Dundee had to say. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And it is always a distinct honor to welcome our next guest. He is the legendary promoter of Memphis Wrestling and the mastermind behind so many wonderful, not only memories of my childhood, but great money-making angles that made the territory so special. I'm talking about, of course, Jerry Jarrett. Jerry, welcome back to KFR. Scott, thank you so much for having me back, and you make me feel so good with your introductions. I would like to be on every week because I just get this wonderful elation, mental elation, <laughs> when you introduce me. Well, <laughs> as I understand it, though, I can ask you to join me right along ringside ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling on a weekly basis because you're launching your own podcast, Booking Memphis with Jerry Jarrett, which is set to, uh, gosh, I guess it's set to debut this summer. Well, we're hoping to launch in the next three or four weeks. Um, I'll tell you how it came about. There is a young man in Chicago named Sean Reedy, and... One day, I got this phone call from Sean, and he said, uh, with great deference in his voice, Mr. Jared, it's such a great honor to talk to you. Well, you know, he had me at hello. <laughs> 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 
but anyway, he he goes on to say, to tell me how hot Memphis wrestling was, <coughs> excuse me, on the internet, and how many people under 30 years old that knew my promotion and the angles and Jerry Lawler and Scott in the diaper and you know, all the great things that happened on Memphis TV. <laughs> and he said, I think that it would be a lifetime dream of mine to host you in a podcast. So I said, well, let me think about it. And I talked to a few people and they said, well, you know, you can't make a lot of money in the podcast and you're used to making a lot of money. And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, and besides that, um, who is Sean Reedy? He doesn't know anything about the podcast business. And so then I, I told, I called him back and I said, I'm not going to do it, Sean. And then he said, well, would you listen and critique just as a favor to me, my podcast? So I tuned it in and I was going to listen to four or five minutes of it. And when the show ended an hour later, I was still listening and I thought, you know, this kid knows about Memphis wrestling and, and he is. I think he's pretty good. So, you know, what the heck? I'll give it a try. And we went from um, no to yes. And so that's that's how it came about. And I'm hoping that I can keep the people entertained, telling them not just the angles that we shot, but the background, how they came to be, some philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, no, I think that that's obviously our fans love it when you come on the show because, like myself, I mean, we, we all we grew up fans of, of Memphis wrestling, but back then it was such a closely guarded business. And so, you know, we look back at, at these wonderful moments and how you guys – drew money week after week with, frankly, I think the best episodic wrestling television show in the country because you're going to the same towns drawing just tremendous amounts of money, and you don't do that without, uh, number one, uh, strong storytelling abilities and the ability to produce great television and variety. You know, uh, the, 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 the Memphis shows themselves would often end with, with, a, with a cliffhanger of sorts that, that kept you uh, tuning in and, and just riveted. And so to, to have your perspective and finally, you know, as we've grown older, we still have all these wonderful memories, but we don't know what was the thinking and what was the original plan and what went into it. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating uh, to hear you talk about Memphis wrestling. Well, I'm, I'm certainly going to give it my best shot. Um, just listening to your explanation then, uh, what came to mind is that originally Terry Taylor was going to be one of the fabulous ones. And 
my thinking was uh, Terry is a handsome guy and uh, I've got to be sure that this team who I'm going to put in glitz and glamour is not um, too pretty boy so that the guys don't like them. So I took Terry out and inserted, inserted Steve Kern to give it more of a rugged masculine look. A lot of people might not know that. Yeah. No, and that and that made that made I had heard the story before, um, and but then you know you and I had a, had a broader conversation about it, and it really does it really made the difference in the team because Stan Lane uh, was could be rugged, but let's Stan Stan Lane was was a pretty man, <laughs> you know he was attractive. Uh, Steve Steve Kern and Steve Kern was in great shape, but he was he was grittier. He was a fighter. He's a little bit more in that classic Fargo brawling style. Uh, he could wrestle, but you know he he wasn't. Uh, yeah, he wasn't as good looking as Lane, and, and brought an edge to the team. That's right. Yeah. And, and those things. I mean, you know, I insisted that they wear long tights, and the reason I did that was that here they are cast in a movie star role with Hollywood-type videos. And if they're out there in shorts and these great physiques and and good-looking guys, I would get a little perturbed if my wife said, boy, aren't they cute. So I said, you got to wear long tights if you're going to wear a sequin top hat. And... uh, you know, it was. I hated that I was proven right, but when they left the Tennessee territory and went to Vern Gagne, they took the long tights off and substituted them for short tights, and it proceeded to kill them in about six weeks. Well, and not and not only that, Jerry, uh, they didn't have the endorsement of the legendary Jackie Fargo. Which I don't, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I know, I know that they, I think they grew to care for Jackie, uh, but I think they overestimated their own popularity uh, without thinking in regards to the, you know, a big reason of the, the big part of this formula, even though Jackie was not in their corner every week, he was brought in occasionally, uh, you know, which again was a smart move. I uh, probably Jackie had no interest in being there every week anyway, but it was smarter because when he did come in, it was for something big, like when the moon dogs uh put Kern's net between the the middle rope and the top rope and hung him and you know and put him out of commission that you know that brought Fargo in that popped the house and because you know we knew we were going to get a Fargo match with two by fours and bells and whistles and uh, you know everything but the kitchen sink uh so I, you know, they they go to Chicago and they're strutting around in these glitzy, you know, uh, outfits and uh, top hats and the whole nine yards. I think eventually, I think they started in the long tights and then maybe eventually went to the short tights. Uh, and, and that's a that's a manly audience up there. Uh, and they don't have a legend's stamp of approval. Yeah, yeah. I, I hated it, but I... You know, I cautioned them, and I said, 
you know, you're walking a thin line to keep the male fans. And, you know, I guess they had a different opinion. I know they did. But they were a great tag team, drew a lot of money. Uh, at the time, they were selling more in pictures than they were making money, and they were getting their payroll was bigger than the guys in New York City were getting for WWF. So, you know, they were some great days. Um, that was the only time in the territory that we could draw without lower headlines. Yeah. That's when the fans were there. Well, so, they, you know, Lawler, they showed, Lawler showed me a book one time. You know, he, he kept a, a journal, and he was explaining to me how, you know, when you brought the fabs in, you were able to, you know, split the, the towns up a little bit. You know, one show would be headlined by fabs, uh, the other by Lawler and, and, and maybe the rock and roll, you know, and, and so you'd still have that. Uh, teeny bopper appeal but you know ricky and ricky and robert were such a fantastic team but the fabs came first <laughs> you know and, and were grittier they were more memphis you know i i, I was trying to you know i was when I, we did our show last week talking about how lawler was the perfect hometown sports hero it only made sense that just because memphis is a unique town that the that the, the, the the biggest baby face in Memphis is going to be the still going to be the dirtiest wrestler in the game because uh, it just fits the town. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have, uh, you know, I've, I've said this a number of occasions. I have uh, been involved with a lot of wrestlers at the beginning of their career for a number of them. Uh, Hulk Hogan, Sting, Ultimate Warrior, and uh, on and on and on. But in my mind, without a doubt, Jerry Lawler is the best wrestler I ever promoted because he could wrestle in the ring, he could lead a match and control an unseasoned opponent. And then he's made a living um, with his vocal skills long past his wrestling days. And the composite of all those skills, and then you add the magic dust of charisma, and it's hard to replace a Jerry Lawler. Yeah, you know it's it's said often in this business, but it 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 doesn't always ring true. Uh, I you know they're 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 the special ones. You know, Dusty Rhodes likely not going to see another one ever, uh, and Jerry Lawler is right there too. Uh, just an unbelievably versatile talent who drew so much money in the same town for years. Had had a bond with the fans like no other local star, and was also able. He also understood, and we were talking about this too, Jerry. You know, guys like Dusty Rhodes and Junkyard Dog. A lot of these guys who were big stars in, in their in their local territories, they rarely lost clean uh, or even lost at all, I mean, but by a pinfall. 
Uh, Kerry Von Erick's another one. Uh, they br- they would bring in Ric Flair, make him look like an absolute joke. Uh, you guys understood that it's okay if Lawler loses occasionally because that that builds anticipation for the rematch, makes that guy he beats look even stronger, especially like when it comes to a guy like Bachwinkle. Uh, you know, I'd never seen anybody kick out of a fist drop. You know, when Lawler would come off that second rope, Bachwinkle kicks out of two. And this is a, a deal where it's a non-title match. And then Lawler has to go to the top rope and hit a third one, finally pins him. But my friends and I, all we were talking about is, well, how tough is Nick Bachwinkle? <laughs> you know, you know the, Jerry finally beat him, showed he could beat the world champion. But it took him three fist drops, one from the top rope, which is, you know, it was a no time limit, no DQ match. Uh, so he didn't, it, the world champion lost and it, and it made Lawler stronger, but it didn't make a joke of the of the championship, which is what happened to Flair. You know, Flair would just do any, you know, he'd go in there and put over Mike Graham in his, you know, fifth match. Or not Mike Graham, but uh, Mike Von Erich. Uh, you know, just do these ridiculous things, and and you and and I think you uh, you also understood, and maybe Jerry because he was a Browns fan, and the Browns lost so much. You know, when you when when your team loses, sometimes that makes you stronger. Yeah, it makes the connection stronger because you hurt too. So when Jerry would come up short in a world title match, I I felt his pain. You know, and I because I, I, it was something that I wanted for him. And somehow it made him more endearing, I think, to me and, and, and a lot of my friends, you know, to come so close but not get it. Well, the reason we were able to do that is I felt like, and, and Jerry bought into the program 100%, I felt like that what would make us successful and what would continue to make us successful was the storyline and not the matches. So a lot of the territories were based on the matches. And when you do that and you and you have somebody as a champion, when they lose, they're done. And so our efforts were spent on telling the story. The I always like to say that, you know, Pro wrestling at its best is Shakespeare for the masses. It's a it, it's a storytelling drama that's played out in our stages, the ring. But the storytelling is much more important than the matches. Yeah, and a lot of times too, um, the heroes in the in the, in those Shakespearean plays they're not perfect. You know they they have they have they have flaws too, and sometimes their ego puts them in bad situations. Uh, yet they learn a lesson from it, and and I think that that uh, Lawler kind of fits that deal. I think a lot of I think a lot of the guy, a lot of the superstars uh, who got over in Memphis because they weren't perfect and they weren't supermen. You know they had their own flaws. Sometimes they were out of line. You know Dutch Mantel. I I, I just I love Dutch just because. It was almost he was Stone Cold Austin before there was Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, you know, guy went in there. He he could jump on Bill Dundee, who was for years one of the most popular wrestlers. But the fans, a lot of fans, still sided with Dutch because he was speaking his mind. <laughs> you know, um, you know, speaking of Dutch, 
somebody uh, re- responded to one of my tweets on TV that says, quoted, supposedly quoted Dutch, that, that he had said, we couldn't afford to buy steroids because we were hardly able to afford to eat. And I wrote back that I did not believe that Dutch said that. And the reason was is that Dutch was a very good wrestler. And I also believed him not to be stupid. If you were starving in a wrestling territory, working for an office, why would you spend the bulk of your career there? I, I think that, yeah, I think that was Dutch being a little facetious because, <laughs> because I, I, I've interviewed Dutch before and I asked him about you and, and, and the payoffs because he worked for Goulas and he, you know, I, I, I asked the comparisons about, about the, and he said, well, anybody who didn't make money for Jerry Jarrett just didn't get over. You know, if you were, if you got over, you made money. If you didn't get over, you weren't going to make money. So I don't. I think I think that may have been the. If if I can see Dutch make you know crack you know cracking a joke like that, uh, very sardonically, but yeah. But anyway, the, in the same tweet, they were talking about Steve Austin has said that all he could eat was raw potatoes. He didn't make any money. My answer to that is, I'm going to send Steve Austin a bill five million dollars and tell him you owe the interest in addition to the five million dollars he might write back wow i don't owe you five million dollars and i said oh yeah you know a lot of kids go to college and and they have to pay several hundred thousand and all they can do is get out and make fifty thousand a year you make Five thousand a year. Yeah. Five million a year. <laughs> yeah, he got so, quite a he got quite an education. You know, <laughs> yeah, when we started people that nobody else would book. Nobody. Um we sent Steve to our wrestling school out in Dallas. This was during the time I was on the Dallas territory with the Von Erics. And uh, you know, we took him out of the school and I said, uh, you know, Dallas doesn't run, but on Friday night, and because you're inexperienced in green, I can't book you out here other than as a carpenter. But if you come to Memphis, we wrestle seven days a week and I can get you a lot of experience. So, brother, he was the first one on the bus. We I had a tour bus that I would go to Dallas on Friday and back to Memphis TV on Saturday. And uh, that tour bus is where he fell in love with his wife, Jeannie, who was the second wife. She was uh, a valet for us. Yeah, no, I re- that, Jerry, that's around the time I broke in refereeing. I, I officiated one of his first matches in Memphis. And I remember thinking, uh, boy, you know, kid, kids uh, got a good look, uh, got a lot of potential, 
never, never dreamed he would be what he was. But it wasn't, I'll say five, 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 maybe five months later, I work, I officiated a match with, officiated, I worked, I was, I was working as a referee uh, in a match between uh, your son, Jeff and, and Steve and Steve, had, you know, he, he, he learned fast and, he, and, and I think Dutch had taken him under his wing. He gave him the name, Steve Austin. Um, and plus, you know, Jeff at this point was, was a polished professional, um, and some people may scoff when I say Jeff was carrying Steve Austin. He was carrying Steve Austin, and I was officiating the match, but Steve was keeping up with him. And it, and I was, I, and I, I was a fan of that match, even as a referee. I was going, this kid has improved so much in a short period of time. But you know, you stop and think about it. He's he's working the loop. He's working the same towns every week, so he can't. You know, he's got he's got to constantly. He's forced to come up with new stuff to add so he doesn't repeat himself. And he's learning this from the veterans and he's taking these long bus rides and car rides and he's hopefully absorbing what they're telling him. Uh, and it sounds like he was a good listener and learned a lot. And I saw it firsthand how well he improved. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine if if he had have called Bill Watts down in Louisiana or Eddie Graham in Florida or the Crockett's in the Carolinas and said, hello, I'm Steve Austin and I haven't had any matches yet, but I, I think I'm pretty good. Would you pay me a couple of hundred dollars a match? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I think Steve would be back at his job in Dallas. Well, I, and I, th- I think a lot of guys, it's almost like that old, you know, well, back in my day, we walked 10 miles in the snow and it's sort of, it's sort of become that thing. You know, anybody who broke into wrestling and, and, uh, and that kind of difficult, it was difficult, you know, cause Memphis used to, a guy could work in Memphis and you know, be in the middle of the car to maybe, maybe a casual made of enter, make a hundred grand or 200, you know, uh, but in the early nineties, it just, because of, the way the the business was splitting off and Vince promoting nationwide, uh, you know, you had to pay your dues in a new way. You had to come and you, do, you had, to, had to do like people, a lot of people do in the Indian industry. When you're, you know, you're starting out a comedian, you're doing open mics, you're not making any money, you know, but you're getting up there and you're, but you're bombing, you're learning uh, how to experience and handle hecklers and you're doing all this kind of stuff. And it was sort of that deal. And I think even though the money was was not good and not what it once was, uh, the experience was invaluable. Yes, yes. Well, you know, so many uh, passed through and touched my life and I touched theirs that when I went to that Hall of Fame, um, you know, Sting came up and hugged my neck and and uh, Scott Hall, and uh, then all of a sudden I'm walking down, and here's AJ Styles, and tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, uh, I'm so glad to see you, uh, because I know I wouldn't be here tonight as the WWE World Champion if you hadn't have taken me to TNA. And we gave 
AJ Styles $300 a match at TNA. And so he could sit around and say, oh, I starved to death there. But instead, he got very emotional because he's intelligent enough to know that he had wrestled the independent circuit a long time before I saw his match. Was it you or, or, or Jeff who who saw uh, him first and, and thought this guy would be uh, a good fit for, for our organization? Yeah, it was me. Uh, Bert Prentice called me and said, uh, I know you're starting a wrestling company. You ought to come here. I've got three or four guys that I think you'd like. And, of course, A.J. was just incredible. So, you know, I signed him right on the spot. And yeah. then, you know, when Jeff saw him, Jeff liked him, too. Yeah, and, uh, gosh, we had uh, we had Jeff on, uh, I guess, about a month ago, right before uh, WrestleMania. And it was funny. I, I think Jeff... He had been doing so many interviews, and I think everybody was asking him the same old questions uh, about you know his departure from WWF, some of the TNA stuff. And I think I was one of the first ones to, to really ask him detailed questions about Memphis. And he, I could just I could hear him, you know, his spirit just light up, you know. Um, and he, he I, we just had a blast and, and he had another call that he was supposed to get on and he, he said, stop me, you know, when we get to 30 minutes and I look up and it's like 45 minutes and he's still wanting to go. And I go, Jeff, I, I got to cut you off, man, cause I know you got a, another call. And he's like, oh my gosh, uh, I just totally lost track of the time, but, uh, we're going to have Jeff on to talk a little bit more about his Memphis days. But he says, um, that, uh, that you were, that you were so tough on him. Because you wanted him to not only earn the respect of the boys, but also the fans. And he recalled one time Phil Hickerson was beating the stew out of him, either with a belt or a kendo stick, and some baby faces were going to make the save. But they were taking their sweet time getting there, and Phil leaned down and and said to Jeff, he goes, Jeff, I'm sorry, but until your old man sends him, i got to keep doing this. Well, you know, I did not. The George Gula's influence was really heavy on heart and on my mind. And I didn't want Jeff to ever be thought of that the only reason you're where you are is your daddy. So, yes, I was really tough on him and I I, want, I I told him, I said, you not only have to earn the respect of all the wrestlers, you have to earn the respect of the fans because you're going to have a lot of negative jerks say, verbalize, oh, well, Jeff wouldn't be there if it wasn't for his daddy. And... Uh, you were there, and all the people that were there during that time know that that Jeff more than earned his position in the wrestling business. Absolutely, absolutely. And but I, I you know, and I, I'm just gonna. I, I, I told I told Jeff this. I said I, I was one of those negative jerks, you know, uh, in the beginning. 
uh, I, I, I actually carry, uh, I, I, I didn't make this, my friends and I, we made some obnoxious signs. We thought we were really smart, Jerry, because we'd been reading the Wrestling Observer and, you know, we were just out of high school and we thought, man, we knew it all. And, um, uh, actually, no, it was, we were still in high school, you know, because I think Jeff had only been in, uh, about a year and a half or so. So it might've been my senior year in high school, but I started getting the observer in 86 when I was a sophomore in high school and it blew my mind, but it also kind of, uh, probably made me kind of a, a, a prick when it came to wrestling because I just thought, I uh, I knew it all. Uh, but Jeff, Jeff, I told, I asked, I told Jeff, I said, you know what? The, when you took that beating, with the kendo stick from Tojo and that great angle on TV where Lance grabs the hammer and is coming after Tojo. Man, you took that beating. We started to respect you. When you did that angle where they, they, uh, the said stable broke your wrist and you kept wrestling, you turned the corner again. You know, there, there were all the, you know, we were paying attention. And, if, and it got to the point where we go, he's earned his spot. Well, I think he did, and um, they were some good times to look back on. I was, you know, I was having to fight that battle too because I had I had wrestlers come to my house and ask for a meeting and and say, uh, "I know Jeff's your son. Will I get ever get a shot at the top spot?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely." Jeff asked me the same thing, only it was regarding Lawler. And I'll tell him the same thing. When you can put asses in the seats, you can take Lawler's place. And and that's what this business is about. It isn't about who's your uncle or who's your father or who's your mother. It's, it's about can you produce? And producing in the wrestling business is selling tickets. Yeah, I, I had somebody on recently, and they said, well, you can almost take anybody, <clears throat> put them on TV, and they're a star. Um, I disagree with that because uh, George Goulas is living proof of that because he was on TV. Uh, he would be a special referee, and his ad, he would be a special referee with Lawler and Luthez uh, and Sam Bass against Tommy Gilbert, Eddie Marlin, and Tojo, I think. And yet his picture is in the paper, a special referee for a Goulas ad. You know, he was shoved down everyone's throats, couldn't have gotten more airtime, but the fans are savvy. You know, the, the fans can tell when a guy doesn't deserve to be there. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they just, they, and I asked Jeff too about the comparisons to Goulas and, um, uh, and I was a little nervous asking that question, but, but he, he took it in stride and he goes, you know, I, I didn't fully appreciate it until, uh, I, 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 until I was already kind of done with it, you know, and after I had kind of proven myself and then I, I realized then, uh, the similarities that probably some of the fans were, were making there. He also credited, I think you had him work with Tarzan Goto a lot for maybe about six yeah. weeks. And he said he learned a ton from him. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jerry, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, last week we, we talked about Jerry Lawler's, it was the 30th anniversary of his AWA World Heavyweight title win. You and I, in our very first episode, talked about the original quest for the title and then what became the overarching storyline for, for so many years for the promotion, uh, Lawler's chase, uh, of the, of the championship. 
Um, just really quickly, can can you tell me um, what what it meant to you at that point? Uh, was it too late? In 88, um, I'm just interested in your I, – I know my perspective, even though I was in the business, but I was a fan then. I know the way that I sort of feel about it. Uh, to, to me, I was able to kind of check any kind of negative thought because I think Lawler deserved it and should have gotten it. And, you know, as early – you know, as – 79 uh maybe 82 when when he came back from from the broken leg that would have been a great uh ending to to the to the triumphant return he goes through jimmy hart then gets the world title uh but it finally comes in 88 uh did it feel anticlimactic to you or how, how did you look at it no not at all i was uh you know it still is one of the great this disappointments of my promotion because I had you know we were the first to do um, video MTV type videos on the rest so I flew on my own dime to Dallas and sat down with Fritz von Erich I flew to Minneapolis and sat down with um, Bern Gagne um I went all around. I went to watch and showed them the concept and how to do it. And it drew, everybody started doing it and everybody started making money with it. Fritz did the uh, Freebirds video and that video must have made Fritz a couple of million dollars because suddenly the Freebirds were, you know, the talk of the wrestling industry. So, and, and I was there, Jerry, the night Jim Cornette was there too, as a fan. Uh, and I believe the uh, wrestling fans international, uh, they were also there the night that you, uh, the Freebirds came up to you and asked if they could play Freebird over the PA at the Coliseum. And you were the first promoter yeah. to say, yeah, do it. And, we all were on our feet and Lawler, you know, was, was in the ring. Uh, the, this, and he was, a, he was a baby face about to turn heel on Dundee, but, uh, he didn't, you know, he, I think, I think Lawler was like, what in the world? <laughs> Cause, you know, these guys were kind of stealing his thunder because when that music hit, we all went to our feet and two weeks, two or three weeks later, uh, you know, he turns heel on Dundee and gets the world title shot against Bachwinkle. And I don't know if this is, this may be me reading something into it, but Lawler, it was the first time I think that he'd ever made the throne entrance. And not only that, he had music and not only that, but the house lights were off. So it was almost like, a, like he had taken what the Freebirds did and just amped it up like times 10. Well, no, we all realized that we were a lot more than wrestling, that it was, uh, it was like a rock concert. It was show business. And, but anyway, back to my, your original question. I had helped everybody. I'd sent them talent. Um, and every time that I would go to the national, the NWA convention, wherever it was, Las Vegas, New Orleans, and campaign for Lawler to get the belt. Some jerk promoter would say, oh, he's not very tough. Somebody will get in the ring and kick his ass. 
And, you know, I would tell them how stupid he was that Lawler had been in more riots and knocked out more people than all the other champions put together. That Lawler, you know, was very capable of having the belt. But it fell on deaf ears. So I got so angry at him that I pulled out of the NWA. I said, the hell with you. Y'all don't make me. And um, then I started talking to Vern, and Vern agreed. Well, what I told him, I said, go talk to Bockwinkle and get his opinion of Lawler. Go talk to Kurt Henning and get his opinion of Lawler. Go talk to the Road Warriors and get their opinion of Lawler. So he did it, and he called me back, and he said, no, he said, you know, Jerry should be a world champion. And so it was set from that point on. And it was not anticlimactic to me at all. Okay. Okay, and it wasn't, and it wasn't to me either. Even though you know, I, I sort of because I was a huge fan of Nick Bockwinkel, and I I really wished that that it had happened that way, like when that he had beaten Nick. But given the fact that the title change didn't occur until '88, uh, you know, I didn't know. First of all, Bockwinkel was in such great shape for so many years. I never knew how old he was. I mean, my gosh, in '82 he was like in his late 40s and or almost 50, and I didn't even know it. So by '88, to me, the fact that Hennig held it and you could tell Kurt was going to be the next big star in wrestling. I mean, he, he was just so gifted and just on fire as a performer. And the first time he defended the championship in Memphis, uh, I was there and I believe he got through about 8,000 fans, which, you know, was, was not too shabby in 1987. No, no. Um, sure was. Well, one thing I'm curious about, you know, and you had told the story about how in 78 you did switch the affiliation of the titles to from a, from NWA to AWA, and you felt like it would be easier to convince one man uh, to, to put the belt on Lawler. Uh, and then you met, we also have talked about the CWA title and, and your hopes to maybe merge that with, with the AWA title. Uh, why did it – why did it take so long uh, – for Vern to agree to pull the trigger on it? Or was there sort of a plan in place in 79 and 80 and then when Lawler broke his leg? Because Vern ended up giving himself one last run with the title in the summer of 80, which would have, and then, and it, and it went to, you know, which was almost kind of ridiculous, really. But, um, I just wonder if, you know, was there sort of an agreement in place that he was going to get it earlier? He well, there wasn't a cut and dried agreement. He just said, "I, Jerry, I agree with you. Lawler deserves to be a world champion. He's one of the greats of this business." So, with that being said, it wasn't something that I was pushing for immediately, and. You know, we we were drawing money. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Didn't didn't really need it that much. I mean, <laughs> no, we didn't. And see, there are some complications with it too. 
if Lawler wins the title, then he has obligations in Denver, in Minnesota, and in Chicago. And I needed him in Memphis and Louisville and Evansville and Lexington. You know, we were we were packing Rough Arena once a month yeah. on Thursday night. Yeah. Which, so, which at a roundabout way, know, it's, it's interesting because you guys were doing so much good business with with the personal issues. You didn't even bring the world champion in for the entire year of 1981 and really not until toward the end of 82 when Flair came in. Um, and, 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 and in effect, it made the world championship matches that much more special because – you know, so so many promotions, you know, Florida and Georgia. I mean, God, the world champion was there almost every other week. Belt wasn't going to change hands in most cases. Fans, you know, fans would get disappointed. They had to lose faith in, at some point uh, in there ever being a title change in their area. But with us, it was just it, it was almost like a game seven of a playoff. You know, when the world champ came to town. Here's the catch twenty two that I found myself in. You bring in the world champion, whether it's NWA or uh, or Ganya, AWA, and you don't book Lawler against him. The fans go, "What's wrong? Lawler's head honcho." So you book Lawler against him, and then you either have a bullshit finish that you throw out or you beat Lawler. So with me knowing that eventually Lawler was going to get the title, it didn't behoove us to bring the champion in and put us in that tar baby situation. Hmm. Of what do we do? Beat Lawler or run in or... Or, or, devalue, or devalue the world champion. You know, and make and make Nick look weak. Yeah. And and every week when I would sit down to write TV and book Memphis, my central thought was, I cannot do anything that's going to insult the fans' intelligence or affect their ability to suspend disbelief or to not follow logic. So that really puts you in a box while it protected the territory and is the, I think, the reason we outlasted everybody else. It also made booking very difficult. Because, you know, if you just, on first blush, you say you want a championship match, yes. But then if you really think through it and analyze it, you go, no, what am I going to do with him? And one thing, too, about the NWA world title um, that I've always been kind of curious about, would Lawler have even wanted it? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Because of the... You know the the history of it. Vern's title 
And I'm talking about early history. Burns' title was Burns broke away from the NWA and put the belt on himself. And the New York title was just the company title. You know, he didn't, the W, San Martino didn't wrestle in title matches other than for WWF. So the NWA title uh, would wrestle in Canada and Mexico and Luthez had a number of matches in India. And so it was more of a legitimate world title than any of the others. So, yes, I would have hated to have lost Jerry, but I would have been proud for him, and I campaigned for it. Yeah, I, I was just curious, just because I know that uh, Jerry loved working for you and, and, and in front of the fans in Memphis, not only uh, because of your, your your relationship with him and uh, and his relationship to the fans, but also the fact that, you know, the travel schedule wasn't as brutal as a lot of places, and he was able to, to be in, at home most nights. Uh, I just was curious, you know, if he would have wanted – uh, an extended run with with the NWA title title uh, or not, uh, you know, if he would have been fine with doing that kind of rough schedule, whether he's in a different, you know, I've heard Jack Briscoe talk about it, Terry Funk, where they'd wake up in the morning in a hotel and like, what city am I in? <laughs> oh yeah, well, I don't think Jerry would have wanted the title much over a year, if if that long, but you know, he certainly didn't want the title for a week like Tommy Rich had it and uh, the NWA Sam Munchnick offered me that and I said hell no they, uh, they did they they, off, they they'd off, they offered Lawler a cup of coffee with it yeah you know here you can have it and win it in Memphis and lose it back in Evansville and I said no no that's insulting okay was was that the reason why was, did, did that happen around 82 when flair came in for that tv bout and didn't come back i don't i don't remember okay well I, I, and again we cornette and i have speculated because uh flair came in and that was it was a hell of an angle i i still prefer bachwinkle over flair but um, it, you know, it was great television, and I was just in. And, and Lawler was riding high off the Andy Kaufman deal. He had just appeared on David Letterman, uh, and I was just wondering if they had dangled that carrot. Uh, but then, you know, we're maybe we're going to do it where it was. It would almost come off like a fluke, like Lawler didn't 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 convincingly beat the world champion and hang on to it. And I think with Barnett with with his deal with uh, Tommy Rich getting uh, the, the championship, uh, I think Barnett knew that Dusty was getting it the next month in, in at the Omni, which is in Tommy's backyard. Um, and then there was talk of it going to Flair after that. So if Tommy was ever going to get it, it was going to have to be maybe at a spot show and have it for a week. Well, I think that backfired maybe even – maybe even hurt Tommy. I mean, it may have finished Barnett's storyline, but it uh, maybe have hurt, hurt Tommy in the long run. Oh, I think, I think it did. I mean, you know, and 
keep in mind, Scott, that I, at that period of my life, I probably slept six hours a night. And so for 18 hours a day, I was thinking wrestling. And I would play the TV over in my mind over and over and over. What's the reason for this? Why are they going out in the parking lot? Uh, you know, why are they doing this and why are they doing that? And because I wanted everything to be logical. And uh, so to me, it just was illogical to have somebody of lawless statue to be in a fluke title situation. And I, I wasn't going to do it. Okay, that's good. That's, uh, no, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that they had ever uh, insinuated that, 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 that they would they would float that idea out there. I didn't, I didn't know that they agreed to that, but it, it, and I'm sure, I'm sure for some promoters that that might've been tempting to take it, but you saw the big picture, but you saw the big picture. It sounds like to me, but anyway, uh, just uh, one, one, one thing, Jerry, that, that, and and I've taken up way too much of your time. Uh, but when we start talking about Memphis wrestling, we, we get carried, I think we get a little carried away. Uh, this podcast that you're starting, I, I, and I know the, the, uh, the focus on it is going to be Memphis wrestling. Uh, I don't know if you're going to do it, if you're going to start with a particular year and, and go through it, uh, much like you, you know, very episodic. Uh, but I'm sure whatever approach you take will, will be a winning formula. In any way, though, I am curious. Is this also giving you a forum to perhaps fire back at it, uh, who has become somewhat of a, your online nemesis, Bruce Pritchard. Oh, yeah, since I've gotten involved in this uh, podcast thing, to tell you the truth, I've never heard the story of uh, Jerry's recipe for chicken salad. Um, I, I don't know. I wish somebody would tell me where I could find it because I'd like to hear it. Um, I do like to cook, and I cook often. Uh, however, my wife is the one that always prepares the chicken salad, and it is delicious. And so maybe he thinks I can steal her recipe. I don't know the purpose of it. Here's what I do know. I have, I'm going to borrow a thought. I have a nine-year-old granddaughter who is exceptionally bright, and she is the sweetest child I know. It's my daughter's uh, youngest daughter, Jenna. And and Jenna has a sweet way about her, and her brothers are a little more blunt in their conversation. So they might say something about somebody's waist size or physical appearance or their clothes, uh, just some kind of remark, and Jenna will correct them and say, I wish you wouldn't say that. Just say she's unfortunate. <laughs> so, so poor Bruce 
is unfortunate. Now, if he, because I heard that, I don't know, but I heard that he hadn't done well um, business-wise. And if he, if it helped his career to have a two-year feud with Jerry Jarrett, uh, good for him. Um, Bruce was never one of my favorite people. When I was in New York, he was Pat Patterson's gopher, and I kind of endured Bruce. Um, he, I don't think he's ever been real talented. Uh, he he tried some kind of gimmick as a preacher or something that didn't last very long with the WWE. Yeah, bro- the brother love deal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and and that's going to inherently have a short shelf life. Yeah, and his brother Tom Pritchard was a great wrestler and and a relatively big star for me in the territory. Uh, you remember Tom Pritchard? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, heck, heck of a worker. Yeah. Yeah, very good. And uh, But Bruce, poor Bruce, was just not athletic. So a lot of people have asked, are you... You know, do you mind him making fun of you being a Southerner? I said, no, that's Bruce's problem. Uh, Do you mind him talking about your slow talk? I said, no, I think my slow talk uh, has served me better in business than his quicker pace has served him. So... (laughs) You know, yes, if I can have some fun with it. Uh, Sean Reedy has suggested that we get a uh, T-shirt made that says Jerry's Chicken Salad, and on the back of it, put the ingredients. Well, I, I just want to say, I, I just want, I just want to say really quickly, you forwarded that recipe to me, and I've, I, I have to say, best chicken salad I've ever had. Just want to just just want to say that, and uh, as I, I understand, you might oh, be yes. you might be selling the recipe, which uh, which delivered, I, I delivered almonds. And, uh, <laughs> well, don't give it away for free. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yes, it's very good. I don't know how the story came about, but you know, if it if it's a figment of Bruce's imagination, and it helped him make a little money from the bottom of my heart. I'm glad he did. Um, I wish that I didn't think of Bruce as poor Bruce, but, uh, and I don't mean that from financial. <laughs> it's, I'm going to quit saying that. Well, you know, I, I people, when I had you as a guest on my show, Jerry, people asked me, they said, well, why didn't you ask him about Bruce Pritchard? And I said, "Well, why would I? What? Why? Why would I? Why would I ask this man, who I don't? You know, I'm not always going to have a lot of his time. I'm taking way too much time today. Uh, I've got about a million things I've always wanted to ask him. Why bring up that garbage? 
it's it's beneath, it's beneath me. I, I'm not. I don't care what what uh, what Bruce Pritchard thinks of Jerry Jerk. First of all, so why would I bring it up? You know, uh, and I'm hoping that you can take his chicken shit and turn it into chicken salad with with uh, your new podcast. <laughs> well, let's both take the high road with my granddaughter Jenna and just refer to. Bruce as being unfortunate. Unfortunate? (laughs) Unfortunate Bruce Pritchard. (laughs) Unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Hey, I heard that he had moved his uh, podcast to WWE Network. Yes, it's no longer in his uh, parents' basement. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Do, do you have a problem with unfortunate? Uh, no, 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 no. And I, uh, and I, actually, I, I like the 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 host of the show, uh, Conrad Thompson, uh, because there was a little bit of a sparring match going on after your appearance, and I was just burning uh, some of the uneducated. Uh, guests who weren't familiar with your career and were taking things, bro- what thinking things brother love was saying has gospel, uh, and just eating eating them alive. And, and Conrad kind of stepped in, and and he he's a nice guy, and he was like, whoa, let's just all you know break it up here and and, and get along. And and I've I've chatted with him occasionally. I, I think I think he's a pretty good guy, and uh, you know, and and Bruce, hey, he spins a good yarn. He's a good bullshitter. But it, but you gotta understand he's but you know but most bullshitters and con art, con artists are very charming. <laughs> God, I hope you don't ever turn against me. <laughs> oh, you, you know what? I, Your I, tongue I, I, can be a cutting sword. <laughs> I'm going to take the high road. Okay, okay. And anybody that asks me about Bruce, I'm just going to say. You mean unfortunate Bruce Pritchard? Well, Jerry, tell me later. You know, I'll check in with you in a few weeks. Tell me how the view is from the high road. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe maybe I'll join you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, (laughs) over the time, over the course, I've had some people that I didn't care for in the wrestling business. But the wonderful thing about longevity and living a long life is that those sour notes that you've encountered along the road in your life become less meaningful. And you really have a tendency to squash those thoughts and remember the good times and I think that happens with most people maybe it's God's way of preparing us for our future main event but it it really has happened with me you know there were some people that I would think oh that SOB I hope he gets a burr under his saddle Uh, but then Time goes on and it washes all that away and you go, I really don't remember that. Like you were telling me earlier about an interview I had that some guys ambushed me. And 
how angry you and Mark James got. And yeah. I told you, I don't remember that. And I really don't. I don't know their name. I can't remember how they ambushed me or what the questions were. And, uh, you know, for that, I'm thankful. Well, uh, you know, to me, I, I, yeah, to me, Jerry, I just think that that speaks to your character. And plus, you've got better things to do with your time than than worry about what a couple of idiots uh, on a local show ask you uh, who maybe are just trying to kiss up to uh to, to unfortunate Bruce. Well, it is unfortunate that we are, uh, that we are almost two hours into this <laughs> and, uh, and I got to let you go, but, uh, but I'd love to have you back. I obviously wish you uh, best of luck in your new venture. If it's like anything else you do, I'm sure it'll be wildly successful. And, uh, and who knows, maybe we'll, uh, we'll think of something where maybe we could form a tag team at some point. And, uh, but, yeah, that yeah. would be great. And, and let me tell you something. I'm hoping and I certainly will be on your show, and I hope you're on mine because I can't think of anybody that I enjoy talking about Memphis than with you. Uh, I've enjoyed the relationship with you from the time you wore a diaper on Memphis TV. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Over my khakis. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, I enjoyed your articles on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, and I enjoy your podcast. So anytime you can't find anybody to be on, call me, because I enjoy it. Well, and it's my understanding that you've already got Mil Mascaris lined up to be your first guest. (laughs) Well, let's let's see, Mil Mascaris. Oh, he's not... He's a Mexican movie star that also wrestles. You know, I'll call my friend Salvador Lugo and talk to him about it. Wait, Salvador passed away. Well, I'm still... Somebody... I'm still feuding with uh, Jim Cornette over that issue. Oh, yes, yes. Um, Now you're refreshing my mind. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Bill Mascaris Monday Night Mystery still continues. Oh, well. But uh, we're, we're going to solve it one of these days. But anyway, well, hey, Jerry, uh, again, and I'm not going to waste your time. You told me the whole the, the whole story. Uh, I know it's true. I was there that night, even though I was only seven or eight years old. <laughs> I have vivid memories of it. Uh, I saw Bill Mascaris there, and that's good enough for me. Well, hey, Jerry, uh, man, I wish you well. And actually, you know what? I'm going to go whip up some of the some of your wife's chicken salad right now. All right. <laughs> It's good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jerry, for uh, for being our guest again. Enjoyed it. Thank okay. you, Scott. Right, take care. Well, one thing's for sure. It was a king-sized episode here today as part of Jerry Lawler Festival. <laughs> I want to thank Kevin Lawler for coming on. Uh, without the Hank Pym of professional wrestling, I never would have gotten into this business, um, and I really appreciate uh, the chance to talk to him. Uh, I also, man, I always just relish my time speaking with Jerry Jarrett, and I want to thank him for another inside look into the political climate of professional wrestling back in the day when dozens of promoters, I am sure, were campaigning for their local hero to get a run with the championship. 
And Jarrett's instincts turned out to be correct, as in the end, he only needed one man's approval, Vern Gagne, to get Lawler a run with one of the three major championships of the 60s, 70s, and mid-80s, the AWA World Heavyweight title. I'd like to remind you, if you like what you're hearing on KFR, that you'll love what you see over at MemphisWrestlingTees.com, a treasure trove of exclusive Memphis merch, including, by popular demand, our initial shirt honoring the first family of professional wrestling, baby! That's right, has, just, has depicted in the unique Hanna-Barbarian fashion by Arvis Travis Heckel, we finally have a t-shirt honoring the evil Blackheart and his henchmen. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks ask, how can I help support the show? Well, picking up a t-shirt would not only be a big help to us, but also keep in mind that a portion of revenue from most tees sold on the site go to a wrestler who could use some financial assistance or maybe needs a little help for medical bills. Like our good friend of the show, Jerry Gray, who has delighted us all with not only tales of Memphis wrestling on KFR, but also on the mothership. And $3 of every shirt sold will go to the Golden Boy and his ongoing fight with stage four colon cancer. And I mean the Bill and Buddy show. That's an exclusive at MemphisWrestlingTees.com. Three bucks from every shirt sold will go directly to Jerry. Also, I hate to end the show on a bad note, but we recently had the somber anniversary of Andy Kaufman's untimely death in 1984. Um, I've colorized some photos of the bout between Kaufman and the King, and they are on my Facebook page. Uh, you can find those at Facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And uh, I also would like to remind everybody to keep in mind uh, the family of the Macho Man, Randy Savage, who passed away in 2011. I'm going to have a piece up on my Facebook page this week recalling his Memphis days, including the time he showed up at the King's Castle and pounded on his door, demanding that Jerry the Queen Lawler come out and fight him like a man. Well, for Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden reminding you that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling. <laughs>